from the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez. Schools all over L.A. appear to be gearing up to welcome back some of the littlest learners. Now, while Compton Unified's teachers have never left the classroom, we'll hear how they prepped when the kids get back in next week. Plus, California's clean energy goals could be a threat to the survival of the state's condors. Find out how a wind farm's plan to breed them is considered a controversial compromise. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, why 50% of the students at Compton Unified's elementary schools are going back to class next week. There's been a lot said about this issue, both pro and con, but overall, I think the vast majority of citizens within uh, the United States understand the dramatic impact that school closures have had on students across our nation. That conversation is just ahead. But first, let's talk about the science around returning to campus and how we prep our kids for going back. I mean, after all, it's been a year, a year, can you believe it, since many of California's kids have sat in an actual classroom and a lot has changed. The experience of being in school for many will feel different than it did prior to March of 2020. To discuss this and answer all of your coronavirus-related questions, we turn to Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. Now, there's been a lot of moves toward reopening in recent weeks, uh, but I want to do a quick gut check on the state's COVID health right now. Taking that 1,000-foot view, if you can, uh, how are we doing in California? We're doing well in California. We peaked with the number of cases in late December, and the number of cases since then has gradually dropped. And so it's really gradually dropped and steadied off. Hospital resources are much more available. There's more bed space, more ICU space, and more ventilator um, uh, use that that we have available for us. And one positive sign, doctor, is seven more California counties are moving into the so called red tier today. Remind us what that red tier now means. So the purple tier is the worst one. That's widespread um, transmission with more than seven cases per 100,000 people um, per day. Um, The red tier is the next tier below that. So that's substantial transmission between four and seven uh, cases per 100,000 per day, and then a lower rate of um, positive tests. So that's what that indicates, that there's lower transmission, lower rates of positive tests. Lower, but still, you mentioned the word substantial. So that's a reminder that, uh, that doesn't mean that we can just let our guard down and just do whatever we want. Exactly. We need to continue to follow the recommended guidance of mostly masking and social distancing. Now, Doctor, you're in Davis, uh, which I'll remind people is uh, outside of Sacramento. It's also in Yolo County, which is already in that red tier. So I'm curious, what's it like for you up there in the the red tier? What's open? What's not? uh, How are people going about life? Well, I wonder that too, because we're the medical center is actually in Sacramento, and so we're still oh. in the purple tier. So nothing's <laughs> changed. But I've heard of what's been going on in Davis, which is that people have been breathing a sigh of relief. And for example, going down to the red tier means that restaurants can open. Um, they are uh, limited to a maximum twenty-five percent capacity or hundred people, whichever is fewer. But that just seems like such a foreign experience to me to sit indoors in a restaurant. Restaurant and 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 eat. I, <laughs> is is Sacramento close though? Is uh, are, are you guys close to getting into that red tier? 
Yes, the okay. latest I heard was that we we expect over the next several weeks for many of the counties in Northern California to get to that red tier. Well, that's good to know. Maybe you can make some dinner reservations now in, in anticipation. Uh, this, the director for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently cautioned states not to ease restrictions too soon as cases come down. Uh, doctor, what's the risk there? And I wonder if you feel that risk uh, where you are. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, we've seen time and again, surge upon surge of this virus. We think that the latest surges that occurred in January were related to travel and and people getting together outside of people within their usual household um, and Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's. And that's why we saw those increased number of cases. So, you know, I think if we let our guard down, if people do start opening up um, too fast, I think we do risk um, having increased number of cases and and another surge. Now about schools, uh, you and I have talked a lot about whether it's COVID smart to allow students back in the classroom in person, but can you again remind us uh, what the science says about how this virus spreads among young children and in schools? So children um, are less likely to become symptomatic. They're less likely to transmit to others. Um, And what they found both in this country and in other countries, such as England, found when schools have opened up, even in communities with widespread substantial transmission, there's been very little risk of transmission within the schools from child to to adults. There's been a small amount of child-to-child transmission, and almost all the adults, the teachers and staff that were infected, they were infected because they did not follow masking advice and they got infected from their their fellow uh, adults. So we do think it's very safe for schools to open up. Now, a lot of the focus has been on the youngest students, the littlest learners, which is why elementary schools are the first ones to reopen. But what does the research out there say about teenagers, uh, middle and high school age kids? You know, teenagers, we do worry that they're closer to being adults, and so they may be more likely to transmit um, infection, um, and they're more independent and may not follow the masking advice well. But we found that also with the older children, with the teenagers, they can follow the masking advice. Children are very resilient. Um, It's found that schools that have been open during the pandemic and that have required masking, that somewhere between 92 and 97 percent of students during any one week will be wearing a mask. And so there's very little risk in that age group also. And out of curiosity, doctor, what is the difference, the main basic difference between little kids and teenagers when it comes to uh, transmissibility? Well, there's been a lot of things that have been hypothesized, but I think the main thing that that makes sense to me is that the younger children um, do not have as as high a concentration of the receptors, the ACE2 receptor that the spike protein attaches to. And since there's a lower concentration of that receptor in their respiratory tract, they're less likely to be infected. And when they are infected, then they're less likely to transmit to others because they likely have lower concentrations of the virus. Okay. Now, in the next segment, we're going to be talking to the superintendent of the Compton Unified School District. He says 50% of his elementary school families will send their kids back to school next week. Uh, Other smaller districts down here are pretty much the same, while LA Unified is still uh, working things out with uh, the teachers' union. Uh, Doctor, I'm curious what the situation is in your area when it comes to schools. Are students uh, back in schools for the most part? You know, it's hit or miss. It depends on the county and it depends on the school district. So some of the school districts are back. They're full-time. People are in school. Others are still closed and primarily distance learning. So everybody's making their own decisions. What conversations have you had with families about being back in class? I'm sure that parents are asking you a million questions about this. Uh, what, what have been chief concerns uh, of parents that, uh, that have brought to your attention? 
Well, they're concerned about the safety of the children. They're concerned about the safety of their own families. Many families might um, have extended families, so they're worried that the child could get infected at school and then come home and infect grandma that lives with them. So they wonder um, about that risk. And they're also very stressed by the whole pandemic, as we all are. But parents may need to stay home to take care of their children, and they need, may need to assist with the distance learning. And this is causing a lot of stress within families also. So no, again, realize that not every region is the same. Uh, regions are different. But for those families who are on the fence, uh, Dr. about going back to class for whatever reason, how would you advise them? I'm recommending that they go back to class. We realize how important school is, not only for the children, but the entire family. And it's, it's so important that, that we think that children can go to school, and we feel that the risk is very low for them getting infected and bringing it home. What about talking to kids about this? Uh, one of our colleagues here at KPCC says her daughter is really nervous about going back because of the virus, and she's generally a healthy preteen. So what advice uh, do you have for her and for her mom, who's a proponent of going back? Well, change can be hard for children. And so I think we need to understand that after children have been home for a year, that going back to school might be very stressful for them. So it's important to listen to them, to listen to their concerns, and to talk to them um, about it. But what we found is that when children do go back to school, in the first few days or week or two, they are nervous. They do have concerns. They're just not used to it. It's a new environment. And then they do get used to it. They do um, understand and become more comfortable with it. Children are very resilient in that sense. Yeah, we always say that about kids, uh, but I think parents maybe should try and be as resilient for their kids as well. It's a, it's a tough thing to do. We're talking to Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, you mentioned uh, the stress. Uh, it has been a year since most of California's kids have been in school, and there's an obvious concern about learning loss. Uh, doctor, what about emotional or physical health? I can already think that a lack of regular physical education must have an impact on kids. Yeah, so children are staying at, at home. They're not having f as much physical activities. They're Even with the distance learning, they might be snacking more, and some of those snacks are not entirely healthy. So we certainly have seen an increase in kids' obesity. Um, looking at growth charts, they're crossing percentiles and, and getting to unhealthy physical states. But what we worry more about is their mental and behavioral health, and we're, in a, we're definitely in a, a, a behavioral health crisis with children children currently. Suicide now is the second leading cause of death for those aged 10 to 24, and emergency room visits for mental health reasons have risen sharply um, over the past year. They're, they're up over 30% for children 12 to 17 years of age and 25% for those 5 to 11 compared to the same period in the previous year. He says second leading cause of death for kids aged 10 to 24? Yeah, wow. isn't that isn't that awful? That's one of the worst things I've heard in a long time, doctor. That's that's mm. terrible. Um, COVID nineteen aside, I wanted to ask though, because I'm curious about this when it comes to kids' immunity to other childhood viruses. Uh, kids uh, build that up when exposed to colds, but if they haven't been around each other, like like a lot of kids have not been over the past year, is there a concern that uh, they'll all get runny noses all at the same time, or maybe even worse when they come back to campus? 
Well, I, I hope that doesn't happen. I mean, there is a risk of that happening. What we've seen is record low cases of influenza and other respiratory viruses. In fact, at our medical center at UC Davis, we've had zero positive tests for influenza over this season. So it's really unprecedented. And what that shows is that wearing masks and social distancing, not only does that prevent COVID, but it also prevents transmission of other respiratory viruses, such as uh, influenza and viruses that cause common colds. That being said, when children go back to school, we'll expect them to continue to wear masks. And so we were, we're hoping that we don't see a rebound in other respiratory viruses. Now, yeah, you mentioned that uh, once doors do reopen, there's going to be a ton of rules. Masks must be worn. Distance must be maintained, which, of course, makes uh, being back in school anything but normal. And for some uh, LAUSD schools, doctor, I know that there's been questions about playing on playground, uh, game, you know, playing playground games and how much sports can actually be played on a field and whether teachers can actually hand out supplies. How can we prep our kids for a return that really just might feel way different than what they might expect? Well, it will be different. I think for some of these things, we can compromise, certainly on the social distancing. If kids are wearing masks, there's nothing magic about six feet. You know, some European countries use four and a half feet as the distance that they want. And even three feet would probably be fine in schools if they don't have the space. Outdoor activities are very safe. We know that more than 90% of the transmission occurs indoors. And outdoors, the virus is diluted by the extraordinarily large volume of air. So so playing outside on playgrounds is a healthy thing and healthy activity for, for children to do. And are there any resources for parents when it comes to kids and mental health? Uh, you mentioned some of those stats, and that, that, that's, I haven't stopped thinking about it since you mentioned it, but anything parents can look to to try and deal with kids or help kids that are dealing with mental issues that, uh, that uh, this pandemic has certainly maybe brought on them? Yeah, thank you. The, you know, my go-to organization is the American Academy of Pediatrics. That's our professional society, and they have a great website for parents, for information for parents, healthychildren.org. There's a whole lot of information there. It's constantly being updated. Now, while we have you, Doctor, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has now been approved. Uh, what's your hope for a boost in vaccination rates now with this uh, becoming available? Well, both Pfizer and Moderna were ramping up production, but having a third vaccine available is fantastic. It just increases supply, and this one is simpler to administer since it's only one dose. And the storage requirements, the cold, the freezer requirements are much, much less stringent. So this is a vaccine that's going to be easier to push out to rural areas of the state, um, as well as getting into doctor's offices, as well as pharmacies. So we should be able to reach even more people. And doctor, we just got this in, uh, crossed on the New York Times, President Biden announced uh, that there would be enough doses of the vaccine available for the entire adult population in the U.S. by the end of May, though he said uh, it will take longer to inoculate everyone. So he urges people to remain vigilant by wearing masks. But uh, where does that uh, leave, uh, you think, uh, the optimism that people have had since the vaccine has been available? I think it's great. You know, these vaccines are highly effective. We've seen a lot of positive news come out. There's some news from Israel showing that they do decrease the risk of transmission. Also, we've got news from this country that where we first concentrated immunizing for those who live in skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes, um, that we've had much uh, dramatic decreases in the rates of death in those populations. So I think we've made several correct decisions and we're reaping the rewards. And 
the end is in sight for this pandemic. But until we get there, we need to continue to mask and social distance. What do you think, though, doctor? A summer, you know, normally right now we'd be making summer plans, uh, talking about vacations, what we're going to do. Uh, should we be that optimistic? I mean, I realize that probably the summer still will be masked and and generally uh, not as outdoors as we normally would. But I mean, where do you think uh, we'll be by by the summer? I, you know, I, I'm not sure, but I would anticipate that we would have continuing loosening of our restrictions in terms of distancing and masking. I anticipate that soon the CDC will start relaxing adults from other households getting together as long as they're fully vaccinated. So this will be a return to going over to somebody's house for dinner as long as every adult in the group is, is vaccinated. Um, I, I think eventually we're going to see loosening of a lot of the social distancing um, rules that we have. A lot more opening of businesses and activities um, with increasing vaccination rates and increasing rates of immunity um, in our communities. So I, I think it's it's going to get better. We just need to, to wait for that to happen. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, schools all over the L.A. area appear appear to be gearing up to welcome back some of those littlest learners. Now, while Compton Unified's teachers have never left the classroom, we're going to hear next how they've prepared when the kids and the teachers all get back together in classrooms next week. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. Amy Martinez. As we discussed yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced a deal with the legislature to provide $2 billion for districts who reopen transitional kindergarten to second grade by April 1st. Some district officials have welcomed the news, while others have slammed it. United Teachers Los Angeles represents LAUSD, and President uh, Cecily Mayart Cruz said last night the legislation would put LA's hard hit neighborhoods at a disadvantage. If you condition funding on the reopening of schools, that money will only go to white and wealthier schools that do not have the transmission rates that low income black and brown communities do. Reopening schools has become a hot button issue across the state. So we're talking to different stakeholders all over L.A. about their plans for getting kids and teachers back to class. Today, we hear from Compton Unified School District, which serves 26,000 students from some of those hard hit neighborhoods UTLA is talking about. 
The district will begin to welcome elementary school students back next week. And in fact, the teachers have stayed on campus throughout the pandemic, receiving technology support to run virtual classrooms for their students. Staff also have PPE and access to testing through a partnership with St. John's Well Child and Family Center Clinic and will soon have access to vaccines as well. To talk in detail about that, we reached out to Compton Unified Superintendent Darren Brawley and Board of Trustees President Makai Ali. Now, they began our conversation by talking about the impact that the pandemic has had on their students. It's had a dramatic impact in terms of uh, social emotional impact on students, but it's also had an impact in terms of learning loss. Uh, We have data to show that uh, students have been impacted in terms of the amount of time they've been away from school. And we have taken uh, the necessary precautions to get students in school sooner by implementing our small learning cohorts, which initially began with 10% of our students and later on was expanded to 25%. And Superintendent, what would you say has been the biggest challenge so far? Is it uh, internet access? Is it just attendance? What would you say is the biggest thing that's uh, been been a problem? Uh, Attendance has been an issue, but we've taken some important precautions to address that. Um, We have established uh, re-engagement plans across all of our schools within Compton Unified School District, and we have a greater focus in terms of those students that were not engaged, pulling them back on campus to get them re-engaged for students. It has not been an issue of devices for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, We moved very swiftly uh, years ago in terms of the partnerships that we had with uh, both Apple Connect Ed, as well as Verizon uh, learning grants that were uh, achieved within Compton. So we we have the devices. Makaya Lee, your district has made significant progress in student achievement and graduation rates. How has the pandemic affected that? The Compton Unified School District was poised and positioned to make Herculean monumental gains academically if, in fact, we never met COVID. And as a result of that, I can tell you now that the district began to move very swiftly to address issues that we knew would be a result of COVID. For example, as a superintendent articulated learning loss. And so we did work very collaboratively with families, as well as making certain that students were afforded all of the necessary tools, in addition to ensuring that we provided supports with respect to mental health, provided support as far as access to food. All of our staff were afforded personal protective equipment, in addition to ensuring that we immediately moved into a partnership with our federally qualified healthcare center, St. John, to assist in providing healthcare, as well as testing. And now, of course, we're going to be leaning in forward relative to the vaccine within about a week or so. So can you take us through your reopening plan for kindergarten through sixth grade, Superintendent? We are going to do this in two phases. The first phase beginning with March 8th, grades three through six. And then the following week, March 15th, we will return TK through second grade students. In addition to that, we currently have up to 25% of our students that are already receiving education in small learning cohorts based upon their acute needs. We will continue with those students that choose to remain in that model and those that Uh, choose to return back to in-person instruction with their individual teachers in grades TK through six will begin March 8th, once again, Mm -hmm. grades three through six, followed by grades TK through second on March 15th. Makai Ali, what are you hearing from parents in terms of reopening? Do families want kids to go back in class? Or if there are concerns, uh, what have you heard? 
We've surveyed most of our parents and it's looking as if 50% of them are opting to have their children return to school. And so our objective is to meet the desires of our parents in a very safe manner. We're going to follow our 2020-2021 school opening and safety guideline, the plan that has been approved by the Los Angeles County Office of Education, which we have maintained throughout the entire pandemic. And so following those various protocols, we've sanitized classrooms. We put up desk barriers. And again, the objective is to be very, very, very conscious and cognizant of the spread and address it accordingly. You know, one of the things that I've kept hearing from parents when it comes to reopening is that they want to make sure that when things reopen, when kids go back to school, that it is for good. I, a lot of parents stop working, stop taking shifts. The parents like would like to go back to work and wouldn't want to stop working because, say, something didn't go right. So, Superintendent, when it comes to reopening, how much does that factor in to make absolute certain that this goes back to as close to normal as you can get for parents to get their work careers and lives back on track? We take this very seriously. The data that we have in terms of COVID, uh, you know, our tracking mechanism that we implemented months ago is pretty clear. The vast majority of all cases have been contracted outside of the school district. And so I think we're in line with what the research has shown around COVID in terms of its transmissibility, if you will. The vast majority of cases actually are from outside of the school district and have not occurred within the school system. We're talking to Superintendent Darren Brawley and School Board President Makai Ali of the Compton Unified School District about their reopening plan. Uh, Superintendent, do you feel that you have the resources to reopen? Uh, how, how much does Governor Newsom's announcement of $2 billion in incentives for schools that reopen, how much does that help? You know, it will help somewhat, but it will not go far enough. We were going to open up anyway because it's the right thing to do for our community and for our students. So there's been a lot said about this issue, both pro and con, but overall, I think the vast majority of citizens within uh, the United States understand the dramatic impact that school closures have had on students across our nation. Okay, now Superintendent, are you requiring that all teachers and staff get vaccinated before reopening, or will you ask them to come back before they've all been vaccinated? They're already back. They, you know, our, our teachers never left. I want to be very clear about that. When the pandemic hit, we knew that the interactive boards as well as the internet connectivity would be better coming from the school system rather than taking the risk that some folks may have poor connectivity at home and things like that. Well, then so, I guess I mean when the kids come back. Are you requiring that teachers get vaccinated before kids come back? No, we're not requiring, but it does kick off at the same time. So mm. you, you heard from President Ali that our vaccination efforts in conjunction with St. John will begin the week of March 8th, which is the same week that we transition our grades three through six back. In terms of requirements, I think there will be a lot of things that will be worked out in the future in terms of who needs to be vaccinated, as well as what legal rights they have not to be vaccinated. So it's, it's premature for me to comment at this time on that. Now, in related news, uh, last week, the school district settled a 2015 lawsuit over how the district has handled kids who have experienced trauma. Um, Mikhail Lee, the response to this was to create a wellness initiative focused on this. Can you tell us uh, about the intention behind the program? The wellness centers that we'd already had in existence 
have made a tremendous, tremendous impact on the academic achievement over the past few years regarding our students who many, many, many have suffered from trauma. We understand the significance within that respect, but the Compton Unified School District has always boasted a tremendous amount of support for students. We've had partnerships through what's known as affiliation agreements with a host of social emotional learning nonprofits, as well as other ancillary organizations to provide students who may have suffered or, and are suffering in order to ensure that there's a positive approach to their overall academic tenure within our school system. So these wellness centers have been up and running for years, and we will continue to support this effort as time go on. And you settled the lawsuit, so this program has obviously been a success, but what has been the visible outcome for your students since it was implemented? And how do you see it maybe helping kids as we all deal with the effects of this pandemic? The the pandemic brings about some significant new challenges for school systems uh, you know, throughout the state. One strategy that we were able to implement over time was a PBIS strategies with respect to restorative practices. And so we've been a leader within that vein, positive behavior intervention. And the superintendent perhaps can talk a little bit more about that if he's so inclined. And so we've definitely utilized these various forms as well as innovative models of trauma-informed practices based upon the success of not just the district, but also what has been researched to provide positive outcomes, as well as the uh, success that we've sustained as a district over the past few years. Mr. Soup. With everything, there's no matter how great you're doing in, in terms of areas that you're working on, there's always room for continuous improvement. And that's something that we take very seriously within Compton Unified School District. I think it allowed us to look at ways that we could do a better job as it pertained to the social emotional well-being of our students. During the pandemic, well, even before the pandemic, we piloted social emotional programs. And then during the pandemic, we actually implemented uh, social emotional programs uh, throughout the day for all students within Compton Unified School District. So reflecting on what we had in place versus how could we expand what we had in place, uh, you know, the piloting prior to the pandemic assisted us with narrowing our focus in terms of what program we would implement for this purpose. And we're happy to say that that has been implemented throughout the district. That was Superintendent Darren Brawley and School Board President Makai Ali of the Compton Unified School District talking to us about their reopening plan and also addressing their students' wellness needs. Thank you both uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You know, my wife's cousin died of COVID last November after spending a month in the hospital, intubated. She grew up with him in West Texas, and she still hasn't gotten over his death. And a big reason why is because she could not travel to be with him at his bedside, and she wouldn't have been allowed to be near him anyway. Coming up, why grief over COVID hurts more and lasts longer. That's next when Take Two continues. Back now to more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. 
The increase in domestic violence during the pandemic is affecting college students as well. A statewide group that monitors sexual assault and harassment is praising the work of confidential survivor advocates found at many California colleges. KPCC's Adolfo Guzman Lopez reports. Most people who are survivors of sexual abuse or sexual harassment don't seek help. At Cal State San Bernardino, for those who do seek help, Courtney Alexander is there to assist with hospital visits, restraining orders, police reports, and time off from classes. Anytime that they would need to speak to a teacher or request any time off, I would be the person that would be sitting in the meeting with them. And if there was anything they wanted to address with administration, I would also be sitting in those meetings to make sure that the students write are always being respected. As a confidential survivor's advocate, she handles more than two dozen cases. She says intimate partner violence, a form of domestic violence, is up among college students. Students would usually have the opportunity to come on campus and have a couple hours away from home and potentially their abuser. Everyone is spending 24 hours a day inside the house in a potentially dangerous situation. Alexandra is the lone advocate at Cal State San Bernardino, a campus of 19,000 students and several thousand employees. Daniel Samuel is one of three advocates at Cal State Northridge, a much larger campus. She's seeing more digital abuse, people harassed and abused by partners, for example, who track them with phone apps and exercise control by limiting Zoom access and demanding their social media passwords. Digital abuse can also look like belittling over the Internet, constantly texting you and expecting that you respond and that if you don't respond, there will be a sense of punishment or isolation. That will happen in result. University of California and Cal State campuses, as well as some private institutions, employ survivors advocates. They began hiring them about a decade ago after activists put a spotlight on college's shortcomings in combating sexual abuse. The pandemic has moved these advocates' work mostly online. That move has revealed how stay-at-home orders are affecting the dynamics of abuse. Amanda Mao is director of UC Irvine's Campus Assault Resources and Education Office. What we see is people isolating with individuals who may be abusing them. And when they come to us seeking support, that we are called upon to assist them in getting to a safe location. And some students live in places with little privacy for this online help. Carla Aguilar is a confidential survivor's advocate at UC Riverside. If a student that I'm working right now, um, how can I, you know, create safety if they're having to have a counseling session in their bathroom so a parent doesn't hear about what's happening and what's triggering emotions or thoughts? On the other hand, telephone and video conferencing are much more convenient for someone who may have been reluctant to step into a university office seeking help. The advocate's work is garnering praise. Ashley Klein-Jimenez is director of prevention for the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Advocates on campus are absolutely critical to survivors. Um, Advocates are able to assist survivors with being able to identify their choices, both on and off campus. Surveys carried out by some colleges suggest that anywhere from 3 to 30 percent of students undergo some kind of non-consensual act from unwanted touching to rape. Advocates say their work during the pandemic is leading them to prepare for a mixed model of service when they return to campus, in-person counseling, along with online sessions to reach more students. Aguilar looks forward to carrying that out. I am hopeful. 
Um, but I do think, right, there is a lot of um, repairing and healing and connection that's going to have to happen right when we get to campus. Administrators at UC, Cal State, and many private colleges have announced a return to mostly in-person learning in the fall. Covering higher education, I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Now to our grief. COVID-19 is taking a tragic number of lives every day, while others are still dying in more customary ways. No matter the cause, many people aren't able to be with their loved ones during their last days. And afterwards, funerals are often on hold or are limited in scope. KPCC's Julia Paskin reports how these conditions can make the effects of grief last longer and the experience even more difficult to bear. I recently lost someone who, in a lot of ways, was like a second mother. She didn't die from COVID-19, but pandemic regulations still stand. It's not safe to have a memorial for her. I'm having trouble processing her loss for a few reasons, but a big one is that Mama Sue was a mother to a whole lot of people, and being unable to gather with all of them in her honor has me feeling kind of stuck in my grief. Dr. Catherine Shear says there's a reason for that. She says rituals surrounding death are an important part of the healing process. So without those rituals, we struggle a lot more with coming to terms with the loss, which is, of course, what we have to do. We have to, in essence, regroup and find our way forward. Sheer teaches psychiatry at Columbia University and specializes in prolonged grief, something she's seeing a lot more of these days. That's when loss disrupts everyday life beyond what's considered a healthy degree and amount of time. Symptoms of prolonged grief, also known as complicated grief, can include extreme sorrow, isolation, and an inability to feel joy long after suffering a loss. For many, it's not only about missing out on the ritual and the sense of community. It's also about not being with someone when they die. Shear says separation from loved ones during the dying process can also make healing more difficult. Those things contribute to the processing of the reality of the death. That's a part of what we have to do is accept the reality, and then we have to find a way to restore our capacity to feel well-being. An estimated 300,000 died from COVID-19 in the U.S. last year, which leaves many people dealing with loss. Each death results in about nine Americans grieving the death of a close relative. Demographer Emily Smith-Greenway teaches sociology and spatial sciences at USC. She's quantified the impact of COVID-19 fatalities on its survivors. Based on that projection, 225,000 people in California were personally affected by the death of someone from COVID-19 in 2020 alone. The size of the population grieving, you know, and grieving very intimate losses is just enormous. USC professor Diane Blaine specializes in thanatology, which is the study of death and its impact. She says there are ways to find solace in creating your own rituals to help the healing process. Write a letter, you know, to light a candle. You know, I have a little altar. And to just sit and weep. We can still do those things. Many are finding ways to connect with other mourners. Zoom memorial services and online religious ceremonies are being frequently held. If you're still struggling, though, Blaine recommends talking to a grief counselor or support group. 
But there are a lot of communities where mental health services are hard to access, the same communities with high COVID-19 mortality rates. An emerging idea is to train people already trusted in the community, like barbers and church members, to give support. Most importantly, Blaine says to remember that grief doesn't have a timeline. Even though right now there might have to be a forestalling of whatever form of grief process, it can continue and it can continue on even for years. And she says we will be able to gather again at some point in the memory of those we've lost. And that can be healing whenever it happens. For what it's worth, I think I'll light another candle tonight. I'm Julia Paskin. California has had some pretty ambitious clean energy goals, but those goals could be a deadly threat to the survival of the state's condors, a very fragile population to begin with already. Now find out how wind farms plan to breed them in captivity is considered a controversial compromise. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. If there was a phrase to sum up the push-pull battle between California renewable energy goals and protecting the state's natural resources, it might be this. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Now, the omelet in this analogy could be the California Renewable Energy Act, which commits to 100% zero-carbon energy supply by 2045. The eggs, ironically, could represent the California condor. You see, the state's quest for 100% clean energy could be putting the already fragile condor population in danger. So a wind power company has come up with a solution, but it's considered a very controversial compromise. Here to talk about both sides of the issue is Louis Sahagan. He reports on environmental issues for the Los Angeles Times and recently wrote an article all about this. So Louis, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right. So first off, what is this threat that the California condor is under right now? The good news is that wild and windy places throughout Kern County's Tehachapi Mountains are once again foraging grounds for critically endangered California condors, which had dwindled to just a handful of birds only 40 years ago. Bad news is that those same places are magnets for wind farms. The condor population is expanding, and as a result, federal officials say collisions are inevitable. Birds are going to get sliced up into blades. Have any condors already have been killed so far, or or has that uh, not quite happened yet? There have been no documented cases of a wind turbine injuring or killing a condor, but if the population continues to grow, collisions are inevitable. Yeah, they're they're endangered and they're protected. How many condors are there right now? And how long has it taken to get the population to where it is? 40 years ago, there were roughly a few dozen left. Uh, today, because of captive breeding programs, there are 518 California condors 
And Lewis, the wind turbines, how much is California relying on these wind turbines to get the state to meet its clean energy goals? This is one of the most important renewable energy endeavors in our time. And there is so much money to enable the growth of this uh, renewable energy that it's so important that this company has offered to spend $527,000 to raise condors, to replace condors killed in its turbines. What company is, is the one uh, at the center of the story? The name of the wind farm is Manzana, and it is owned by a company in Oregon that has made an arrangement with the local Oregon Zoo to breed these condors. They want to breed six condors for release when they reach one and a half years of age, which is the age at which they are believed to be able to defend themselves in the yeah. wild. And, and the idea, Lewis, is that since it is inevitable, at least uh, in the eyes of fish and wildlife, that condors will be killed by these wind turbines, that raising these condors would replace the ones that get killed eventually. The idea is that uh, there is an anticipated kill of two adult condors at this specific wind farm over the next 30 years, along with the loss of two chicks and two eggs. So that's six birds. If, however, there are no condor kills at that wind farm over the next 30 years, well, then California would receive six condors that it weren't anticipated, almost like a, a gift at a cost yeah. of half a million dollars. So that sounds like a good compromise, at least. Uh, what do environmentalists have to say about this plan? Environmentalists say even discussing such a proposal turns your stomach. <laughs> but on the other hand, what else is there to do? Those wind turbines are up and running. However, there are critics the Center for Biological Diversity, for example, is arguing formally, why stop at six? Why not 30? Mm. We're talking to Louis Sahagan of the LA Times. Um, mentioned how the uh, condor population is growing. No birds have been killed yet. But are, are they living or flying near these wind turbines? Is that what's uh, making uh, fish and wildlife think, okay, eventually something terrible is going to happen? In 2017, and 2018, California condors have been seen swooping down and landing on rocks and on the ground within a one and a quarter mile of that wind farm. So it's not like, gee, 10 years from now, we might have a condor flying through. They're there. So it's getting to be a very dicey time for the company because they are encroaching on the property. And it is a terrible thought. I mean, I, I, I understand environmentalists. I mean, no one wants to even think that you'd have to raise these condors to replace ones that are eventually going to get killed if that indeed happens. But do they see any better plan out there? That's the bittersweet conclusion is that they don't see a better plan. I talked to environmentalists who say, um, you know, it's painful to even discuss the idea of raising expendable condors, but we need the energy. We have to thwart global climate change. 
Yeah, it feels, Lewis, like all of this can also be covered by another old saying that a good compromise is when both parties are dissatisfied. I can't imagine the company wants to shell out a, a half a million dollars to do this. But uh, at the same time, environmentalists, as you mentioned, don't have another plan that's that's better than the one being presented. It, it really highlights how difficult it is to do all of this in a way that satisfies all stakeholders. Well, Gary George, who is clean energy director at the National Audubon Society said it this way, if wind energy and the expanding condor population can't get along, we're not going to get very far in staving off catastrophic climate change or saving this magnificent creature from extinction. Is this plan, Lewis, a done deal? Is it expected uh, that the breeding program will begin sometime soon or are there still some things they need to iron out before it happens? What's interesting about this plan is that the federal government, in this case, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is assisting the company in developing this plan. You know, it's not, it's not a matter of waiting for the company to come up with a plan and then argue over it. The government is helping the company in this case. I interviewed company officials who said they would be ready to launch this breeding program by spring. Could there be a chance, considering that uh, if, if this is going to happen with the condors, that this could happen for other animals? I know golden eagles uh, have also in the past run into wind turbines, or at least uh, carcasses were found near wind turbines. So could this uh, program expand to all kinds of other animals? Of course, I've been asking and no one wants to uh, get near the answer to that question, but it does, the mind does wonder, doesn't it? I haven't heard that the federal government is entertaining that idea yet. However, I have heard that there are other wind companies that are at the edges of their seats to see if this particular plan uh, is approved and launched. In the meantime, thousands of bats are killed by wind turbines across the state of California. Thousands of birds are killed by wind turbines across the California, including golden eagles, like in the windy Altima Pass of the Bay Area. It is true that millions of birds are killed by window strikes, poison, shootings, and all manner of other things that have nothing to do with renewable energy. The difference here, however, is that this is a federally protected bird, and there are serious repercussions for killing one. That separates it from migrating warblers or something. That's Louis Sahagan of the Los Angeles Times. Louis, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. All right, if you missed any part of Take Two, you know that Take Two is the perfect Take a walk show. We're about 49 minutes. You download the whole thing. You got a 49-minute walk. You're in better shape after listening to an entire Take Two show. Just head to wherever you get your podcast, and there we will be waiting to go along with your walk uh, this afternoon. You can also find us on social media. We're at Take Two on Twitter. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A. Martinez LA, at A. Martinez LA. Good for Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.